Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the new essay collection Uncertain Ground from Penguin Press, and me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Today, two extraordinary poems brought to us by none other than the birthday boy himself, Phil Cly. <laughs> uh, the, the, the birthday boy is, of course, a poetic expression that in this case refers to the fact that we are recording on Phil's birthday, a day we won't disclose him being a world-famous author and all, but uh, <laughs> it is... It is Phil's birthday right now. So um, for all of his um, fanboys and fangirls out there, just imagine Phil sitting in his birthday hat. Um, I think they call it a birthday suit, right? That's when, when, you, <laughs> when you wear a fancy suit. And, um, and reading from, uh, well, we have two poems today. This is, I think, the first time we've ever done two poems. And one of them is Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1877, written in 1877 poem, God's Grandeur, which was not published until uh, many years later after his death, actually. And then Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens, uh, an absolutely extraordinary work by uh, a poet who I think might be Maybe the greatest of all American poets, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and they they go together like, um, I don't know, like, like paganism and religious belief. Like, uh, <laughs> like a Roman and a toga. Um, Phil, this was your choice. So I, I do think it was uh, it was an inspired choice. So what were you thinking here? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're two poems deeply concerned with, with religion and the natural world and, and also just their first rate poets. I mean, these are, they're, you know, um, they're absolutely incredible. So uh, I've been wanting to, you know, originally we were going to do just like a, uh, a short episode just on Stevens, but I thought it'd be more interesting to, to bring in Hopkins. And so it's wrong in some ways that, you know, that the, the Stevens is going to be our manifesto, but the Stevens will be our manifesto. And yeah, it's a more manifesto like poem. Yeah. I don't know. Should we just, just get into it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Okay. So I will, uh, I'm going to read the opening stanza plus a I'll few tell, lines. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Yeah, this, good. I read this poem for the first time. So when I got back from Iraq, one of uh, the guys who was, at the stateside unit, he greets me when I come off the bus and he's like, I hooked you up, man. You're going on a boondoggle to Germany. And I was like, what? And he's like, oh, there's this training exercise to Germany. And I, I, you know, signed you up for it, you know, cause I figured after your time in Iraq, <laughs> you'd want like some nice boondoggle. And I was like, Sounds okay, great. Cool. what's, what's the, uh, what's the exercise? And he goes, it's called operation austere challenge. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a boondoggle. Um, and so, it wasn't terrible, but we got sent to Grafenvor. We were locked up on base the whole time on like the training area of Grafenvor in Germany. And all the Marines were put up 
in old dilapidated squad bays where they had these, you know, bunk beds and it was just like the wire racks and they had no mattresses. So mm. uh, they gave us blow up mattresses to put on the wire racks. But of course, if you put blow up mattresses on wire racks, they'll steadily get punctured. And so you'd sort of wake up in the middle of the night and hear people going, <laughs> trying to, you know, reinflate their, their leaky air mattresses. So I would sit in, in that squad bay while people were blowing up their leaky air mattresses, reading Wallace Stevens poetry through for the first time. So I associate Stevens with that particular experience. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know uh, quite how to untangle that. I understand that there is a, some kind of metaphor there in what you've just said that you're trying to get across to all of us. <laughs> I, I don't know what it means, but uh, I think as we read the Stevens, we might be able to approach um, the meaning of the, the hissing air mattresses is uh, ah, the holy hush, the holy hush of ancient sacrifice, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. It's uh Terrible to be having him as, as, as the manifesto. Like he's actually in Stanley Cavell, uh, Aesthetic Problems of Modern Philosophy. He uses Stevens as an example of somebody who can't re be reduced to paraphrase. And he says, some modes of figurative language are such that in them what an expression means cannot be said at all, at least not in any of the more or less familiar conventional ways so far noticed about such an expression. It may be right to say, I know what it means, but I can't say what it means. And he uses an example from this poem, Sunday Morning as a calm darkens among water lights. Paraphrasing the lines or explaining their meaning or telling it or putting the thought another way, all these are out of the question. One may be able to say nothing except that a feeling has been voiced by a kindred spirit and that if someone does not get it, he is not in one's world or not of one's flesh. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, it is what symbolist poetry aspires to be, right? Yeah. Which is uh, for there to be no no difference at all between um the the sign and signifier or uh or the the image and the meaning of the image and it's funny that you mentioned that line uh so let me read uh, the first stanza i'm going to handle the the stevens I'll, i will act as the um the pagan the pagan stevens reader here Sunday morning, complacencies of the penoir and late coffee and oranges in a sunny chair and the green freedom of a cockatoo upon a rug mingle to dissipate the holy hush of ancient sacrifice. She dreams a little and she feels the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe as a calm darkens among water lights, the pungent oranges and bright green wings seem things in some procession of the dead, winding across wide water without sound. The day is like wide water without sound, stilled for the passing of her dreaming feet over the seas to silent Palestine, Dominion of the blood and sepulchre. Why should she give her bounty to the dead? What is divinity if it can come only in silent shadows and in dreams? 
Shall she not find in comforts of the sun, in pungent fruit and bright green wings, or else in any balm or beauty of the earth, things to be cherished like the thought of heaven? Divinity must live within herself. And it goes on, and I, I do a, an injustice to cut it off in the middle of the stanza, but I'm afraid if I don't stop there, I'll be forced to read the entire poem, and that'll go on for quite some time. But I, I read it after you mention that, Phil, because you know there's the repetition uh, yeah. of winding across wide water without sound, which is both an image and uh, that an image that conveys a meaning that is utterly inseparable from the image to such an extent that you know the the repetition sort of achieves that um winding across wide water without sound the day is like wide water without sound um and i not every line in the poem is like that you know there are there are lines in the poem that are more sort of formally declamatory or you know it moves between this woman uh who is the figure of the poem the subject who it begins with complacencies of the penoir a penoir being like a kind of uh what is it like a, a negligee uh, essentially and late coffee and oranges in a sunny chair and and then the wonderful image of the uh the green freedom of a cockatoo and it's so it's essentially like a woman of leisure who is lounging, not going to church, not going to church. It's a Sunday morning. Yeah. She's not at church. She's lounging, um, in this, you know, somewhat bourgeois luxury, bourgeois luxury that also has a kind of eerie connection to nature, which is, um, nature is sort of, uh, piercing through into the bourgeois luxury such that she is thinking about God or the absence of God um, and the presence of, uh, uh, of nature and of death. But um, man, it's uh, the, the, I find this often with Stevens, I guess this is, um, you know, a particularly, a particularly sort of inspired example. Some of these lines are so perfect, but you know, it's, it's genuinely transporting. And uh, yeah. I don't often, I find myself reading a poem, even a poem where I, I think the lines are beautiful or I'm admiring the effect they achieve. And with Stevens, when it's good, and I mean, this is as good as it gets. I, I I have a genuinely transporting experience where I'm in this sort of um, eerie in-between sort of uh, somewhere between my own imagination and the, and the world I'm sitting in at the moment. It's a, a, a powerful and a unique experience. I don't get it from much poetry. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's just absolutely astounding so the central tension is this sort of this woman's unease she's you know made her decision not to go to church to enjoy the um 
the sort of bourgeois pleasures, right? And and you know, Stevens himself was like an extremely hardworking insurance salesman. Yeah, and a lawyer. Oh, lawyer, lawyer yeah. right? Yeah, who couldn't get insurance himself because he had high blood pressure, and you know, so these are sort of earned pleasures <laughs> that he enjoyed through, you know, capitalist labor. And the nature is, you know, you described it as, as, as breaking through, but the nature is, is tamed nature, right? It's not wild in this poem. And it's, it's you know, it's frequently not wild. There's a, there's a great Stephen's poem is the, uh, the idea of order at Key West, mm. where this singing uh, of a woman by the sea and he writes, it may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind, but it was she and not the sea we heard. For she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever hooded tragic gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. Um, and so there's the natural world, but for Stevens, I think there's always a kind of emphasis on, on what what humans do with it, what the human mind does with it. He once wrote, the real is only the base, but it is the base, right? Mm. So you, you, you stay with, you know, you start with the, 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 you know, the natural world often. And he has this very obviously incredibly intense relationship to the natural world. But the emphasis is, you know, he's not like an ecological poet for all his, his emphasis on, on nature and, and the intense, reactions that he has to it. You know, this is a wonderful anecdote of the jar. It's a short poem, which I'll just read quickly. I placed a jar in Tennessee and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground and tall and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush like nothing else in Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Great, but if, you know it's a very particular emphasis and relationship to to nature. Yeah, right? to nature and to reality and to the experience of nature as something, somewhat like a a dreaming supernatural reality that is charged with you know not only the physical or the actual, but also with the kind of eerie mythical resonances of the imagined actual, you know, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird is another, I mean, that's, it's a poem about a bird, right? I mean, it's a nature poem. (laughs) Is it not? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yet it's also about, um, it's also about the, the strange flights of, of reality. Um, Look, there's a bit, there's a great, Bit from uh, philosopher Simon Critchley has a has an essay on you know he's sort of interested in Stevens and what Stevens offers philosophically, and he talks about a kind of contradiction that he sees in in Stevens' work. Stevens at one point writes, "There is nothing greater than reality. In this predicament, we have to accept reality itself as the only genius." But then, on the other hand, he also writes at one point, "Imagination is the only genius," and Critchley responds. Now, how can both reality and imagination be the only genius? They cannot. This is a contradiction, which, of course, is an abomination in philosophy, as we all agree. 
And yet, perhaps, as I shall now try to show, poetry is the exploration of this philosophical abomination. Hmm. Where did Stevens write that, does he say? I'm curious. It's what, in what his that adagio. So he's got these, like, little, uh, the adagia, mm-hmm. uh, aphorisms, mm-hmm. these, you know, it is life. We're, yeah, you know, yeah, we yeah. have all these little, little, little notes. It is life. We are trying to get into poetry. Poetry must be irrational. Money is a kind of poetry. Uh, a poet looks at the world as a man looks at a woman. Aristotle is a skeleton. The body is the great poem, et cetera, et cetera, right? Ignorance is one of the sources of, of poetry. And, and one of my favorites, poetry must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Ah, that's great. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, and, and of course, you know, his poems seem so much, um, as, as smarter is the wrong word, but they seem, uh, they age so much better than... Uh, poets who seem to be straining to be smart in a way that he was not. They like, you know, they have, um, well, let's not get into (laughs) comparing him to the the people he's better than. That's uh, the list of people he's (laughs) better than is long, but um, wait, come back to that for a second to the, the, to the, to Sunday morning, the poem we're talking about and to what you were just, you were saying about the ways in which he is and isn't rooted in reality because this, poem in it of itself not only displays that to come back to what you were saying actually earlier about like you know the symbol and the image and the meaning being mm-hmm. uh so super condensed you there there's no separation it's also that the character at the center of the poem this bourgeois woman begins by taking in her surroundings and she is what yeah. she's, you know, the complacencies of the penny. Well, she she is complacent. There is a, uh, a you know, a sort of leisurely not going to church, uh, free of responsibilities on a Sunday morning attitude. The green yeah. freedom of the cockatoo, and then immediately. Well, all this stuff is is to dissipate the holy hush of ancient sacrifice. Yes, right? and also we're not even through. It's not even all the way through. Right after uh, dissipating the holy hush of ancient sacrifice, it all it all swarms over her. It's unavoidable. So into she that, she a little. She feels the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe. Oh she God. feels yeah. the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe, and so it's precisely in having opened up that space um, that the the dark encroachment of that old catastrophe has to then return uh, because there's nothing else. There's nothing else to fill that. And, uh, and, and then it immediately goes back as a calm darkens among water lights, the pungent oranges and bright green wings. And then again, right. And then back to that old catastrophe, seem things in some procession of the dead. And then we get to that second stanza where now, in a much more direct way, it formalizes what's going on. And, you you know, it's not – well, I don't know. Maybe you have a different opinion, Phil. I don't want to say this declaratively because I don't actually know. But it appears that in the first stanza, we're sort of – we're observing the woman. The, 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 the narrator of the poem is observing this woman. Um, and then in the second stanza – now these questions and they are you know for me 
the woman's questions. Why should she uh, give her bounty to the dead? What is divinity if it can come only in silent shadows and in dreams? You know, I don't think that's some, I don't think that's the poet or the narrator asking those questions on her behalf. I think it's, that's her asking those questions. Um, that's how I read it, although it's not clear. Right. Right. I read it. Th- I read it as her asking those questions. I mean, the, it, yeah, I read it as her asking those questions, but in, in either case, whether it's her or it's the narrator in some sense, asking the questions on her behalf, you, what you get is a series of questions that are saying, um, of what use is God here? Um, and, and why, why should I have need for some furtive, abstracted, half glimpsed God when right in front of me, um, in any bomb or beauty of the earth, there, there are these, uh, these bright green things and there is within the self, the living self so much, um, of the universe that is deserving of worship or, or vital enough to serve the purpose that God had served for uh, the Christian whom someone like Stevens once was. Right. So this, I mean, this is, this is, you know, the, the, it's the sensuous things to be cherished like the thought of heaven, right? But it's not, it's not cherished the same way, like the thought of heaven in terms of how it's cherished, but it's not worshipped, right? Because, and the next line is, divinity must live within herself. Passions of rain or moods in falling snow, grievings in loneliness or unsubdued elations when the forest blooms, right? Um, And so the relationship to these sensuous things, but it's that sensuous experience within her. Right, (laughs) right. uh, You know, where the weight is going to be, right? So that's the kind of opening, opening salvo, right? Mm-hmm. Where that's the res, you know that's the initial response to the trouble, you know, the encroachments of of, of the old catra- catastrophe, right? And then the third poem sort of moves back to the the pagan era, right? And 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 the sort of disillusion of paganism. Jove in the clouds had his inhuman birth. No mother suckled him. No sweet land gave large mannered motions to his mythy mind. He moved among us as a muttering king. I mean, one of the, I don't know if you find this, one of the troubles with, I, I intend to quote like a single line from the poem and then I don't want to stop going. <laughs> yeah. Although I have to say it's so funny because I, you know, I've been critical of uh, blank verse and free verse before. And yet here I find like it's actually the more modernist stanzas in this poem, the real, sort of modernist free verse, like that opening stanza, I find more powerful, more sort of perfect in their way than the, you know, th- this third stanza that, that you were just reading from yeah. Jove in his clouds at his inhuman birth has a bit more of a kind of 19th century character to it. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's not quite as and, memorable for me. Uh, no, it's not. Um, and, and then there's this sort of, question that he comes to uh shall our blood fail or shall it come to be the blood of paradise and shall the earth seem all of paradise that we shall know shall the earth seem all of paradise that we shall know it seems important and then it goes back to the woman and 
She says, I am content when wakened birds before they fly test the reality of misty fields by their sweet questionings. But when the birds are gone and their warm fields return no more, where then is paradise? <clears throat> and she, <laughs> she's longing for something more. The, the sort of fleeting nature of the beauty of the world leaves her unsatisfied, though what she's longing for still is not quite divinity. It's sensuous pleasures that don't decay, right? Like her remembrance of awakened birds or her desire for June and evening tipped by the consummation of the swallow's wings. And then the next stanza, stanza five says, she says, but in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. And the poem answers, death is the mother of beauty. Hence from her alone shall come fulfillment to our dreams and our desires, right? You know, the religious promise is the promise of imperishable, imperishable bliss, right? She's still, even in her, in her contentment, wants that. And the poet says, no, death is the mother of beauty. This is a, this is a false longing. <clears throat> there's, and there's that line... She causes boys to pile new plums and pears on disregarded plate. The maidens taste and stray impassioned in the littering leaves, right? That the, the natural world that she's responding to de demands the sort of cycle of death and decay and rejuvenation. Right, right, right. right. And is therefore the only thing worthy of worship um, or, or worthy of... Uh, uh, the only thing w worthy of attempting to merge with and to, uh, right. um, yeah, you know, in a weird way, this actually reminds me of Job, right? Hmm. Because, you know, in, in, in Job, <laughs> you know, it's coming from a different place. Not like, how can I still have this contentment? But you know, the question of why am I suffering? And, and God, when he comes and talks to Job, and it, there's a sort of, you know, there's a continual emphasis in in, in some of the books of uh, of the Old Testament on like fecundity, right? Mm. And and then in in God's answer to Job, he says, "Do you know the mountain goat's birth time? Do you mark the calving of the gazelles? Do you number the months till they come to term and know their birthing time? They crouch." burst forth with their babes. They're young. They push out to the world. Their offspring batten, grow big in the wild. They go out and do not return. And there's like this long passage of like this beautiful natural imagery, images of fecundity, of a sort of organic creative universe of things generating more and more life. And it goes together with pain, right? So as it ends, it ends. Does the hawk soar by your wisdom, spread his wings to fly away south? By your word does the eagle mount and set his nest on high. On the crag he dwells and beds down. On the crest of the crag his stronghold. From there he seeks out food, and afar his eyes look down. His chap chicks lap up blood. Where the slain are, there he is. Hmm. And so the Job, this is a kind of religious problem about the nature of the world. For the poet here, it's a question about how one ought to respond to perishable bliss but with this sort of strong statement about death is the mother of beauty it just seemed to strike a chord there because the question is not necessarily what to do 
with the suffering of man or the sort of perishable pleasures of this one individual woman, but it takes a step back to consider this sort of the kind of creative potential of the organic natural world on earth bound up as it is with the necessity of death and pain. Yeah. And there's a a metaphysical question here. I mean, there's always a sort of um, implicit metaphysics in a lot of um, Stephen's poems, but that the next stanza, the sixth stanza, which opens, is there no change of death in paradise? Does ripe fruit never fall? And, And the stanza goes on and we can read more of it, but it, it goes on to paint a picture of a deathless paradise that is right. uh, that is sort of sterile and terrifying in its uh, an image of sort of frozen, distorted, almost a perverse kind of idol, you know, a, a a picture of perfection that is where something is missing and the, th- and the, and because something is missing, it takes on an uncanny sinister quality. And the thing that is missing here is precisely death. And so the absence of death, uh, not, yeah. n- not only abstractly deprives, uh, deprives the, 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 you know, deprives us of beauty in an abstract sense, but here, in this depiction of heaven, we are meant to see just how unbeautiful deathlessness is, even when applied to things that we, the, the very things that we had previously considered beautiful. It's it, it, a deathless paradise does not deserve the sensuous, right? Mm. Which is so important. You know, why set the pear upon those riverbanks or spice the shores with odors of the plum, right? Um, you, and it's, yeah, it's, it's the, the, the cost of that deathless paradise is everything that actually animates, animates the poet and the woman in the first place. Yeah. Everything supple, vital, vigorous, fecund, and also, you know, uh, changing, uh, uh, captivating, yeah. captivating in its dynamism, dynamism, mm-hmm. you know, that, that in, in its enchantment, the enchantment being not just a quality of its, uh, beauty as a still life, but in its capacity for change. I mean, it is like that, the, the, you know, you read that stanza and there's, it's, it's freaky, you know, it's not, yeah. um, he does a good job of it. And um, and then it it leads into this um, it the leads, worst stanza in the poem. <laughs> I, what shall we call it? Um, it, it leads into the most uh, the most obvious and uh, shall we say like the uh, crudest. Not, and not, sometimes I like crude. I shouldn't say crude. Like like I mean, it's always a bad thing. You know, I can. I'm a fan of vulgarity. Lame. It's a lame. Yeah, yeah, right, let's, yeah, yeah, it's lame. Right. Supple and turbulent, a ring of men shall chant in orgy on a summer morn. Mourn their boisterous devotion to the. You know it is a god. It's a little cringe. I think that's the word. It's that, cringe. Yeah, yeah, that's the but word. As a god might be naked among them, like a savage source, their chant shall be a chant of paradise Ooh. out of their blood. Yeah, it's, it's not good. It's so. I mean, it's just like a kind of. You know. 
it's not what he it's does like well. You know? ritual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's the poem is so, so powerful until this point. And then I think this is a kind of constant issue. You know, R R Richard Ford has a lot of fun with these new age rituals, right? Where you have, characters like an independence day who you know they want the the mystical unmediated from traditions and practices and organizations of religious institutions that have sort of structured you know rituals for generations that people have meaning find meaning in and and without that kind of mediation without tradition Oftentimes, those those rituals just seem a bit silly or lame. Um, yeah, but you can't and, say you that know. this is unmediated because the intent here is yeah. to depict not a not a spontaneous uh, new age revelry. It's an it's the the intent is to um, evoke a pagan ritual. It's it is a yeah some kind of ancient blood sun rite. The problem for me is not that the paganism is inauthentic. No, nah, but it's it's their their boisterous devotion to the sun, not as a god, but as a god might be, right? Yeah, but I don't know that that's meant to suggest new age new ageness rather than Stevens reading back into hmm. ancient paganism um, what he thinks of as the you know the the substantive difference between its worship and Christian worship. I'm not sure that that's uh, not what's going on there. The bigger problem for me is that he doesn't like, this is not his metier. He's not, there are people who could probably do this. Well, he is not one of them. He's, he is not like the insurance lawyer, Wallace Stevens, who, can create the thing about Stevens, right? Is that to come back to what we were talking about earlier, like in the sense of in the way that he's a natural writer who, in writing about nature, is also writing about uh, reality and imagination, is that he creates these vast, vast interior spaces where yeah. you are brought into something that is like a whole plane of existence, a whole. Uh, a whole sort of inner dimension of reality in which the fit, you know, the, 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 the topography of nature like comes with you in like a mirror image way into the interior. Yeah. It's, it's a brilliant effect. The first stanza of this poem does it absolutely brilliantly you know, where you're sort yeah. of moving back and forth between the real world and the natural world. This woman's meditation, I think Harold Bloom, I was reading uh, when we were originally talking about this, uh, doing this poem, I was reading Harold Bloom on it. And it's been a little while, so I might mess it up. But I believe what I what Bloom said is that it's a meditation on a meditation. Um, he says that either about this poem or maybe he's just talking, it would work about Stevens well, in general. There's a lot of... <laughs> but, you know, it's a meditation this was, on This was Berryman's, like... I mean, this is one of Berryman's like complaints about uh, Stevens. He has a, a song devoted to him in Dream Song mm. that, where he says, what is it missing then at the man's heart so that he does not wound? It is our kind to wound as well as mutter a fact of happy world. That metaphysics he hefted up until we could not breathe the physics. On our side, monotonous or ever fresh, it sticks in Henry's throat to judge. Brilliant, he seethe, better than us, less wide. 
Uh, I have to absorb that. Um, <laughs> you want to translate? <laughs> that metaphysics, he hefted up until we could not breathe the physics. <laughs> um, I don't know. What is that saying? Was, that he hefted up the metaphysics until, what, that the metaphysics occludes the physics, the natural world? I think, yeah, I think so. I don't, um, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like it occludes the natural world because then he I don't like think it does in this back. one particularly. Yeah, but it's when yeah. he's good, it doesn't. It doesn't in this one. It, I mean, right. or, or it doesn't in the better parts of this one. And that's what's so brilliant about Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, right? It like, it's like it sparks. You know, it's like a spark lights think, out, and so, you know, you're you're suddenly like you're in a wooded area, at, at, at looking at a bird, like in a bow at yeah. night, and then it sparks, and you're in some vast interior space. I don't feel like you lose it. I feel like uh, he's not trying so to make I think it. This is the, That's not the point. I think it's that move, right? I think it's that move that bothered. Berryman. Well, then right? he's a fool. Um, he doesn't understand that. That, <laughs> that move is the brilliance of it. Yeah. Uh, well, but, well, what would be why? Yeah, why? I don't understand. So I think actually the Hopkinses may be closer, but but wait, wait, say what you're saying. Like Berryman is objecting, not. But you think you're saying Berryman's problem is not that the metaphysics occludes the physics necessarily, but that he tries to move back and forth in that way. I think it's I think it's about the the weight of things, right? That the that Berryman would be more more invested in the narrative of, of experience, whereas the experience, you know, like in the in that the idea of order at Key West, the important thing is not <laughs> the sea here. The important thing is the song, and I think that's the move that that, that Berryman is objecting to. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I I think that that's. Um... I mean, he also admits, you know, better than us, less wide. Right, you know, right. he admits he's a greater poet, and Berryman's a pretty damn good poet. But um, yeah, anyway. yeah, it I just seems to me to be missing the point. But okay, fair enough. Okay, here in the chanting, uh, you know, blood-soaked uh, ring of turbulent men dancing for their sun god, I think we can agree <laughs> that the problem is by no means an overabundance or a hefting up of metaphysics and is a yeah. like cloying, <laughs> weirdly cloying uh, um, sort of, uh, you know, like a dumb physicality and, and okay, fair enough. You know, like it, it, there are lines in there that work, but yeah, it's just a bit much. Okay. And then the final stanza. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. You want to go? Do you want to just read, just read the final stanza, Jake? Sure. She hears upon that water without sound a voice that cries, the tomb in Palestine is not the porch of spirits lingering. It is the grave of Jesus where he lay. We live in an old chaos of the sun or old dependency of day and night or island solitude, unsponsored, free, of that wide water, inescapable. Deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and, in the isolation of the sky, at evening, 
Casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. Yeah. Uh, we live in an old chaos of the sun. Is, I love that line. Is to me like a much better, more convincing argument for paganism. Like a more affecting... <laughs> I, yeah. I oh my God. Oh, if you just said to me, "We live in an old chaos of the sun," you'd get way farther along toward converting me to pagan paganism than in describing some ring of men in loincloths um, chanting blood rituals. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a brilliant line. It's a. It's a. To me, I mean, I don't want to. We don't have to. I don't want to fixate on this Berryman issue and his. Uh, the inadequacies <laughs> of, of his understanding, but it does seem to me to be again like a rather perfect example of. I mean, this is this is he's there, he's in the physical. It's it's very much there, but he's also, um, you know, he's also sort of. I shouldn't even say he. This is uh, this is like the narrator. This is not. It doesn't read as the poet. It reads as the narrator. And, and it's also returning to the woman at the beginning of the poem, right? She hears upon that water without sound, a voice that cries the tomb in Palestine. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, it, it is returning finally not to pagan rites, not to questions or answers of metaphysics, not towards the sort of maxim uh, about death as the mother of beauty, um, but to uh, sweet berries that ripen in the wilderness um, and casual flocks of pigeons. Um, and so, to, you know, that I think makes uh, makes the point I was making that that yeah. doesn't like, it doesn't it spark in the Nicely way. sort of subtle sort of like religious, you know, but it's, it's a pigeon, not a dove, mm -hmm. but, you know. Imagery yeah, of yeah. the final line, downward darkness on extended wings is just gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, listen to us sitting here like critiquing uh, while Stevens's stanzas, but um, I mean, it's just an, I, I, I stand by everything that I said about stanza. So do I. Not so do I. I also I think you know stanza <laughs> two is not as good. It's just I know I understand. Three. No, I mean two. I understand. Oh, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I understand why the poem needs it, but it's uh, it's just it's like too on the nose for me. After that opening stanza, it's like maybe that should have been stanza three. Actually, maybe he should have waited a beat and like stayed inside of that thing that he built in the first stanza mm. with the woman and uh, the green cockatoo and, and the, the encroachment of death and, and uh, the ancient hush. It's, I would have preferred had it stayed inside of that a bit longer before rolling it up into a ball and, you know, squeezing it into a ball and, um, and posing it as a question in that way. We should say, you know, the backstory. Yeah, here, I, mean, right? I, I just, I'm, I'm just thinking like, yeah. You know, it's really too bad that Wall Stevens didn't have us to offer these uh, these kind of tips. Listen, at a very affordable himself. rate, too. I, <laughs> I would have given my man a discount for sure. You know the backstory <laughs> with uh, the first version of this poem getting published. Yeah, and they took out – they didn't publish all the stanzas, right? Yeah, so they 
Uh, it was published originally in 1915 in um, you know Poetry Magazine, which was the magazine of modernist poetry. It's T.S. Eliot uh, and everybody else, sort of a significant modernist poets were getting uh, published there. And it was Harriet Monroe, who was a fa- famous editor. And um, she, I mean, what I like about the story is both she took out three stanzas, including the second stanza, moved a bunch of lines around. So the echo of Palestine in the for- final stanza, she moves up to the new second hmm. stanza. You know, she's like, you're, you're joking about the two of us uh, giving him advice, but she just straight up re- rewrote Stevens. What I find most memorable about the anecdote is not that she did that because I find that to be fairly standard editor behavior as an editor myself I'd be lying although I thought poetry (laughs) editing was different which I've never done so I'm surprised to hear but what I like is that you know Stevens the unassuming gray man insurance salesman who's also the best American poet um, of his era is just like fine you know, apparently, like, he didn't fight it at all. <laughs> Just like, whatever, publish the thing. And then eight years later, in uh, what was his first collection called? Um, Harmonium. Harmonium. Right? Eight years later in Harmonium, he restores the original version, So, which is the version we just read. Um, so you have yep. to go dig up, excuse me, the edited version if you want to see it. But it's it's a completely different poem, the one, the way Monroe edited it. Interesting. Does Stevens' sort of response to to the world and the desire for transcendence does that like does that speak to you? Um, the imagery speaks to me. The yeah. uh, the more direct it gets as a articulation of a kind of. Um, religious or quasi-religious desire, the less it speaks to me, but the imagery speaks to me. So even the imagery of the deathless paradise as a kind of, you know, hellish frozen perversion of the the vitality of life that speaks to me. Um, the, the, The like need for, Death as the mother of beauty speaks to me. Um, the need for nature as the so- or, or the self as the source of transcendence or as the seat of transcendence. It, no, I wouldn't say that that speaks to me. It might have at a different point in my life, but um, and I, I, yeah, even, a, I don't a, even. A, I just to be clear, like I don't mean that in terms of that's not what I believe. I mean, there are things that speak to me that I don't believe. But in this poem, like what speaks to me in a first order sense, what moves me in a first order sense, it's the, it's those images and and uh, yeah, yeah that that never seems sufficient for me. Right. And like Stevens is, is a great enough poet that he can sort of make it seem sufficient while he's writing the poem. Right. I mean, the, the, the bit from the Berryman that, that sticks for me <laughs> uh, is, 
you know, where he accuses Stevens of, uh, you know, he says, what was it missing then at the man's heart so that he does not wound? It is our kind to wound as well as utter a fact of happy war, you know? Um, <laughs> you can't say that it doesn't address death head on. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's wounding enough for me to really speak to me, you know? <sighs> yeah, I mean, like, I find Stevens in his sort of meditative reveries to be the Stevens that is most, for me, approaches a kind of religious... That's what I mean by transporting. I find the sure. the reveries of image uh, to be the the thing that's most transporting, and that approaches transcendence insofar as it suggests a person experiencing echoes of the cosmos in their own surroundings, and then th- in, internalizing that not merely as ah. Uh, the scenery I, I find in front of me extends infinitely into space, but internalizing that as the echo of that also extends in, you know, infinitely inward. And that feels religious to me. I mean, that speaks yeah. to me yeah. in a, in a transcendent way. Um, yeah. All right. Bernard Hopkins. Bernard Hopkins. Oh, that, are we not? Gerard's, uh, we're not talking you know, about younger brother. All right. I thought this was our boxing episode. Okay. No problem. Gerard Manley Hopkins. What do you, what can you say about Hopkins? I, I was saying to you, I think before we started recording, I haven't read much and I, I don't know too much about him. So he was born into a well-off, I believe. I'm not sure. I don't know if they were rich, but Anglican family. He didn't have exp- exposure to, to poverty until he became a priest. Hmm. He converted, it was actually uh, Newman, John Henry Newman, who um, accepted him in. It was like very distressing to his family that he would become a Catholic, you know, at that time, uh, especially. And he burned his early poems when he committed to become a priest, but then sort of began poetry again. He became a Jesuit. And began poetry again when he heard of this, the Deutschland, the ship had sunk and there were several German nuns on board. And so his first poem is The Wreck of the Deutschland after that. Uh, and it's this sort of very difficult, like sort of difficult, incredible, beautiful poem that, so he corresponded with Robert Bridges during this time. Okay. And, and Bridges didn't really know what to make of the Wreck of the Deutschland. Bridges is the reason that we have Hopkins poetry at all, but he refers to the Wreck of the Deutschland as like the dragon guarding the gate of <laughs> Hopkins poetry. Though from, you know, from, I mean, I love the Wreck of the Deutsch, Deutschland. And then, you know, he's, he's writing this poetry. He's corresponding with, you know, a poet who will go on to be the poet laureate, but he's not really publishing. He's not even really trying to publish. I mean, he sends things out occasionally, but he's so far ahead of his time. Nobody really knows what to make of this very weird poetry, incredibly compressed, what he's doing with sort of uh, rhyme and, 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 and the line is unique. People talk about sprung rhythm, mm. which uh, I once was at an event seated next to the papal nuncio to the United States, and the discussion of sprung rhythm came up, and I used Biggie Smalls. <laughs> to try and explain. And then I realized that I had to come up with some lines from Biggie Smalls that I could recite to the papal nuncio. 
Yeah, I, I can um, think of a few. Uh, yeah, I went with some 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 uh, from party and bullshit, uh, and it worked out great. Uh, but where he has this uh, this line where he's counting the stresses, right? The stress syllables and not the sort of number of syllables. So the line will move and flow in a way that is just like, it's got incredible energy behind it. And one of my favorite poems that I memorized when I was in, in military training is The Windhover, right? And he's trying to get the line to express the feeling of watching this bird that sort of flies into the wind. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dolphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow, brand, bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing, it goes on. Mm. Um, and so that's like a, just a very different type of of poetic line. The effect is incredible. And, you know, he's, he's doing complex things with alliteration and, and whatever within, within. Um, and so people didn't know what to make of it and he wasn't really trying to get it published, but he was writing these poems while also having a pretty tough life as a, as a Jesuit, they were moved around a lot. Uh, I don't think he was supposedly not a particularly good preacher. <laughs> he was exposed to real poverty uh, in I think Liverpool, uh, in, in, in other places, but like, you know, industrial late 19th century poverty. Yeah. You know, like really grinding stuff in a way that he'd not been exposed to before. And then he ultimately dies of typhoid, I think at the age of 45, but yeah, so that's, and, and then decades later, uh, Bridges had sort of waited for the right time. And yeah. in 1918, I think, he puts out a first volume of Hopkins poetry with like a... Oh, that's interesting. So it's coming out actually in the first, uh, sort of maybe in 1918, with the second flush of uh, modernist poetry. Well, it, it, exactly. And even that volume doesn't really sell a ton. Mm. But then sort of later, I think in the 30s, it gets picked up mm. much more. And, you know, it was sort of like... You know, he's a 19th century poet who's writing stuff that people wouldn't have known what to do right, <laughs> within right. that time. But for later generations of poets, he becomes, you know, this real touchstone. And what he's doing is so innovative and, and, and just like enlivening. All right. So now that you've said that, this one is short enough, Phil. You should just, uh, will you read this whole thing? It's um, sure. quite something. Yeah. All right. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, O oh morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a magnificent 
magnificent bit of verse um, from that opening that opening line the word the world is charged with the grandeur of God it will flame out like shining from shook foil um, that is a a magnificent magnificent metaphor um, I I find like the the structure of this I mean look I think that uh, thematically it's obvious why you were thinking of this in connection yeah. with the Stevens right it doesn't it doesn't bear some like we don't need to do some heavy exegesis to to sort that out it this is about uh, the There's presence. a stark divide between the world is only the base, but it is the base, right. and the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Right? The world the is charged with the with yeah. the grandeur of God, which like which comes and goes, but never goes. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, nature is never spent. Right. Right. Um, but formally, you know, structurally, it's so interesting. Like the the rhyme pattern is is very. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting and, and effective, and um, and yeah, I mean, I you certainly I would not read this and think ah, this was written in whenever it was written eighteen fifty something or no eighteen seventy seven. It it uh, it reads like probably somebody with modernist techniques, maybe yeah, going Hopkins back. died in eighteen eighty nine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just yeah. You, it's very strange to like. You have to keep remembering that he's a 19th century poet, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. I mean, it's there's something like very um, assured about that, like. It almost doesn't work. I mean, it's like perfect, but it, you know, it's like it almost doesn't work. But then it, but then it's, uh, it, it, yeah. You, you th this style could could be disastrous. Yeah, very easily. yeah. Any one of like the slightest, yeah, it's the slightest error there. Um, because he's going all out. You know, like there's yeah, no yeah, yeah, there's no yeah. reserve yeah. in Hopkins. <laughs> it's, he's, he's using every every effect, every poetic tool, everything that he can sort of charge into that individual line, and you know, it could it could so easily be be a mess. But instead, it's just utterly exhilarating. The other thing here is that he's it's tamed nature that interests Stevens, right? And what man's doing with nature is, is, is the other sort of obvious. Not uh, always. Disjunction. Not always. That's not a fair characterization of Stevens. I would say, well, so even when you're talking about the sea, right? It's, it's um, the sea in its particularity, right? Which is like, I mean, the ocean is like the, the kind of archetypal image of untamable nature, right? Mm. And in... <laughs> and are, you know, referencing a, a poem that we weren't talking about. And the I idea of order at, at, at Key West, you know, it's it's so clear. This is not about the sea. This is about the song. 
this is about the singer. Yeah, right? yeah, right. But that's always the case. But I don't think that that means tamed. I, I, maybe it's I'm just objecting to the word tamed. I think okay. it's like nature mediated through mind. It's like nature that lives within mind, or you know, is always experience yeah, through yeah. mind as opposed to i hear tamed nature and i think you know uh domesticated scenery or something like that which i thought we were referring to just because of how sunday morning opens but okay i see what you're saying right and you know for hopkins the 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 nature doesn't need the perceiver to be mm. charged with the grandeur mm. of god he was a fan of dun scotus mm. right who is a nominalist, you know, like abstractions are not real, right? Mm. There's only things in their particularity. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see in, in, in the poem that I recited earlier, the, you know, the wind hover, it's like this particular bird free in the air, untamable air, the rhythms of the poem are expressing that kind of wild onrushing and stoppage. And it's not, it's not, <laughs> and, and it's not relating itself back to the individual perceiver and like the the wondrousness of their you know what they're doing with this image I mean for for Stevens it's relating back to God right mm -hmm. and so each thing wild you know sort of separate from you um irreducible unique but nevertheless connected through religious sentiment I th the other thing that occurs to me here is that part of the formal difference that is also a thematic difference or a difference in the two poets' perspectives is, um, you know, Stevens has this character of uh, the woman in, in her complacency and her penoir. And yeah. so, you know, it's not... Stevens and his sort of um, all-seeing consciousness voice. Like it's an mm -hmm. observer voice that it opens with. And it's this woman's particular experience of this Sunday morning that takes this turn. You know, I could imagine from this poem, I haven't read enough Hopkins, so maybe you can tell me, but I could imagine from this poem, like, Hopkins getting inside a, a doubter or a disbeliever or, a, you know, I could imagine the author of this poem, God's grandeur, writing in that voice also. I mean, they, precisely what you were saying, what was the word you used that it's like, you said it's like so, um, you were saying basically like unrestrained that it's, uh, I forget yeah. the word you use. So there are poems that are referred to as the terrible sonnets, which are not terrible in the sense of quality, mm. but rather like mm -hmm. he is sad. <laughs> uh, no worse there is none. Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will. Schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where? Where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? These are, you know, poems that express that, which is, I believe, were written while he was in Liverpool. Again, I'm not a Hop Hopkins scholar. I just like his poetry. So, you know, th those were deeply personal poems that I don't think anybody saw until after he died. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a player. I just crush a lot. <laughs> uh, just, yeah. Along Should have the used lines. that with the papal nuncio. Along the lines of what you were saying. Listen, I mean, the truth is, 
Um, big pun was a hideous, hideous wife beater. It turned out afterwards. You see those really? videos that came out? Crazy stuff came out of him pistol whipping his wife. It's pretty. It, it, it's hard to then go back to the pun records, which are extraordinary. He was like a yeah. phenomenally gifted MC on a technical level, also. Um, but yeah, there was a, a period where uh, uh, like sites were flooded with pun, and his you know his wife, what's like a widow, then released all this video footage from like their home security system oh with pistol whipping her and all this stuff. It was nasty. And then Big Joe, uh, Big Joe, Fat Joe was fighting with uh, pun's ex-wife or uh, deceased. Why do I keep messing this up? His widow and his son, and uh, I mean, I can keep going if you're interested in this. I'll be happy to, I'll be happy to go on. So there's a bit from from Ann Carpenter has a great book on Balthasar, who's mm. very interested in in Hopkins, and <laughs> she, she, I'm just I'm just ignoring. <laughs> <laughs> go, go on, hey, no, it's, it's, it's I good information. I think yeah. that our listeners go should on. know about yeah. Big Pun. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the uniqueness and peculiarity of Christ, of wild nature, and of poetry are not isolated coincidences. Otherwise, there would be no way for us to taste Christ in anything, let alone everything. We would perceive a peculiarity unrelated to everything else known, which would pass away without frame or influence. Here is where von Balthasar's, Balthasar's description of Hopkins' continued conversion, his intensifying Christocentrism, becomes indispensable. Hopkins' theories of inscape and instress, which we can talk about, but which were mostly about the natural world, are given a new radiance the more Hopkins locates them in a doctrine of grace. Everything relates back to the great sacrifice Christ offers on the cross, and indeed, for Hopkins, the cosmos as a whole possesses, either manifestly or secretly, a Christological form. And so for Hopkins, that religious element is not a sort of threat to created beauty, right? But actually it's fulfillment. So, you know, for Hopkins, paradise is not, you know, is the furthest thing from sterility. Right. Um, but I guess the challenge would be um, that you would have to then conjure those images of a deathless paradise that was yet not sterile, which is not what this poem does, nor is it what this poem tries to do, right? This poem yeah. is about God's grandeur on earth and the endowment of a, you know, inexhaustible yet cycling um, beauty on an earth that is both depleted and then replenished, um, but it's always sustained by that grandeur. So that's a different task. But yeah. but the you know the the thing that um, the thing that Stevens does in that stanza is not to make an argument; it's to um, create an image that speaks a series of images that are contained their own, you know, language of argumentation. Yeah. And, and so I, I, maybe he's already done it in a poem I'm not familiar with, but that would seem to me to be 
the appropriate response would be to to be able to create those images that are not um, terrible in the way you used. Terrible, do yeah. not contain some hint of that terribleness in their attempt to evoke uh, perfect serenity. Should we talk about the, the generations have trod, have trod, have trod? Sure. The Batman's all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and chairs man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. Yeah, I mean, I think it's first of all, it's just an incredible. Um, you know, like that was what I was talking about the the rhyme pattern, um, and where like you feel like one false move there and it all sounds uh something you know something could go wrong with that very easily but it's also you know it's like a it's a just a powerful image generations of tribes like like men wandering over the earth generation yeah. after generation uh despoiling it right with trade, smeared with toil, stinking it up so it actually smells, um, right, with like the fetid stink of trade and transactionalism and and despoilation. Yeah. And yet, and yet beneath it remains something that is like something withstands that there is some source, the source being God's grandeur that sustains the earth despite, despite this long cycle of abuse and despoilation. Yeah. Yeah. Nature has never spent that final lot because the Holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with our mm. right wings. Yeah. Mm. I, um, Yeah, I love Hopkins. I mean, no, that's great, man. I'm glad you introduced me. Uh, like I, I said I had um, read a bit of Hopkins in college, um, but it had been a long time and I hadn't read this, so I was glad to do it. Well, Phil, I uh, I know that. In all of our hearts now, happy birthday is being sung, whatever day today is, which we're not going to say, to keep the throngs. My five-year-old has the same birthday, and so, like, I don't have birthdays anymore. It's just uh, the five-year-old's birthday, which is more fun anyway, you know? Yeah, I just, uh, like, I don't know. What's an adult birthday anyway, really? It's like... uh, it's fine. It's like a dinner with your family or a party with friends or whatever. I mean, the good holidays I find these days are the ones that revolve around food, not people. I'm like, ooh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that is, uh, leaving aside all of the, speaking of religious versus pagan stuff, I'm looking forward to the orgiastic feast on turkey legs and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I think of holidays these days in terms of, like... Uh, so if in that Stephen stands of the men were 
naked chanting, you know, an orgy, not to the sun, but to like a turkey leg, you'd be on board. I got to say the, I like a Passover meal is a great meal, you know, like I'm a brisket and matzo ball soup and stuff. Phenomenal top notch meal. Yeah. I love it. But a Thanksgiving meal, a good Thanksgiving meal. I actually like turkey is, uh, so do I. It's like you can't beat that. So, my friend, to you and uh, to Turkey Legs and um, to the grandeur of God. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.